You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. And on today's episode, I'm so excited to have this man with us. I always learn something when he's on the show or anytime that we talk. He's known as King of the Jingle, King of Beers. Who doesn't know about that Budweiser commercial from the 70s? That was one of my favorites. Hershey is the Great American Chocolate Bar. I mean, that's one of my favorites. New Yorkers, of course, all know their anthem. I like to call it an anthem. I love New York. Everybody knows that. I'm talking about... Mr. Steve Carmen, Steve, welcome back to the Rick Z Show. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure speaking with you as well, Steve, and it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, Let's- it's my honor, too. You know, this show today, we're going to be discussing the pitfalls of the music business for creative people. It's a very difficult business, the jingle business yeah. or, or the music business in general. Why don't we start talking about residuals? Why don't we start there? Residuals, okay. so artists who spend their time and their energy making this great music can actually get paid. The reason residuals got started is these great performers, Bob Hope and whoever, you know, the great performers of early radio, all banded together and they say, no, you can't get, you can't use my work twice without paying me. And the musicians went along with it. And even the, uh, the stagehands to a certain degree went along with it. And this was the concept of getting paid the second time why you actually are not doing it twice is called a residual. And as management would say, wait a minute, Rick, I paid you once already. Why do I have to pay you again? You're not doing it again. You're not showing up here. And labor, the which then formed unions, would say, wait a minute, you're using my talent again. You can't just run this show over and over again if you decided, you know, six weeks later, it's a summer hiatus and you want to run the show we recorded six weeks early, you got to pay us. So they, the performers all hung together and then they discovered or developed this concept of residuals. And this has been the battle forever, forever and ever. The musicians union used to, uh, I think it's still that way, there used to be a scale where if you wanted to record four songs, you would pay, uh, I'm picking a number now, $125 to a, to a musician for a three-hour session to record four songs. And, but all the guys would play and they made reasonably, reasonably good money. But then someone would have a hit record and the thing would, you know, Frank Sinatra, whoever you want to talk about, had a hit record, and the guys got nothing. The players got nothing more. And the musicians' union fought for, I think, I don't even remember the correct name of it, I think it's the recording residual or something like that, where the record companies were then required to pay a certain percentage of the income that they made from that record into a fund, and the fund would then be dis- distributed to the players who played on those recordings. So, but as I said earlier, this is an endless battle between management and labor. Fortunately, for, for the songwriter, the, the copyright law came around, I think it was in 1909. But before that, people would, you know, you wrote a song, and you hoped that people would buy the sheet music, and if the thing sold forever, you only got the amount of money that you got in the beginning. And finally, some people got wise, for people like Irving Berlin, who was one of the notoriously terrific businessmen, and he said, no, you're going to use my song, I'll, I'll play it on radio, I want to be paid for it. And they formed a company called, a, a, I don't want to call it a company, a performance rights society called ASCAP. And so, as they say, it's on and on, management wants it for nothing. What are you talking about? I paid you already for it. Why should I pay you again? Well, the, the big shots, the heavyweight people stuck together. And that developed residuals or, you know, the reuse fees, whatever you want to call it. 
And as, as an artist, as a songwriter, I think it's the most important thing. You know, forgive me for, for digressing for a moment, but uh, one of my heroes was a man named Marvin Miller who was the uh, executive secretary of the Baseball Players Union. And I think this year they're going to induct him in, into the Hall of Fame. Although he's, he, he's been on the, uh, the no, we, they didn't like him. Management certainly did not like him. But he represented the players. And it used to be, you know, in the days of Babe Ruth and into the 40s and the 50s, baseball players would sign a contract with a, uh, a team, and that was it. They got paid for it, and they could not have, they didn't have the freedom to work for another team. They couldn't leave because another team, had, you know, got more money, offered them more money. And baseball players relied on Marvin Miller, and he had a tough sell to convince all the players, stick with the union, we're going to form a union. You'll be taken care of by this. You'll be able to work, you know, after three years with one team, you can work for another team. And uh, he was one of the guys, as I say, it's always a battle between labor and management. And he was the strength of the baseball labor union. And this year, I understand they're going to finally induct these. He died, oh, I think four or five years ago, maybe more. Uh, but I've always admired the fact that he got all these baseball players who are not rocket scientists, but they play baseball. And he got them together to hang in there together and to work at minimums. And, uh, you know, it, he, he helped the labor side enormously. And that's, that's the kind of guy that I like. You know, is it true back in the day, Steve, that you could make more money as a singer of jingles than as a writer of jingles? Absolutely. Why is and the that? Reason, and the reason for that is the early the jingle writers, even in my era, I started in 1966, I guess. But even in my era, when they hired a composer to write a jingle, they kind of automatically accepted that he would sell his music for a one-time fee, and that was the end of it as far as the composer goes. But the, the composers all sang on their stuff, sang on their session, and they qualified for union residuals. And this was and still is the really big way that a composer makes money. And it's very unfortunate because uh, someone could write, a, you know, a jingle today. If I wrote, I think I might have told you, I wrote Nationwide is on your side. And it's been on the air for, what, 55 years, a long time. And I was the beginning of my career. And they said, here, sign this. And I, I did. And I owned nothing. They owned everything. They had no obligation to me other than I think they paid me a $1,500 creative fee. This is 1967, something like that. And that was it. And they had the right to use any other arranger that they wanted, any other uh, musicians, any, you know, it was completely theirs. And I look back on it now and I say, yeah, today I would not make that. I, wouldn't, I was going to say it's a mistake, but it wasn't a mistake because that's what it took to start. And when I started, I wanted the job. I was going to write the music for Nationwide Insurance. Holy cow, well, here, what do I sign? Well, you know, well, you want my firstborn? <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, that's how people, you start. But at some point, if you have the courage, and I, I mean courage with a great underlining, the courage to say, no, I don't want to sell my music for a one-time fee. I won't do it. <clears throat> And today, what happens if you say that to an advertising agency, they say, fine, and they have six other people not only waiting in the lobby, but waiting all over the world by the Internet and saying, hey, we want a demo tomorrow night for, uh, I don't know, whatever, pick a car, anything you like. And they get that stuff, and everybody wants to say, sure, I'll sign anything. I don't care. Let me get the money. Uh, you know, I once wrote a book about the jingle, the jingle business called Through the Jingle Jungle. And one of the uh, one one of the people I interviewed said, you know, every music house has, is a man with a mortgage. Every jingle composer is a man with a mortgage. 
And when you think about that, okay, I want to pay my mortgage this month. Well, if you don't sign a contract, kid, you don't get the job. But I really, you know, I really want to now sign a contract for it. Well, that's how it happens. And you give it away, and all of a sudden you're the composer of McDonald's or pick one of anyone that's a big hit. And in 99% of the cases, the advertising agency owns, on behalf of their client, owns the rights. And I personally, you know, I fought for my whole career to not let that happen. And I lost a lot of work because I insisted upon some sort of payment, either a yearly fee, every six months, some, uh, you know, some sort of something. And uh, I know I'm really going on about this, but I, I remember, I think I told you once before, my wife died when my kids were 10, 8, and 7. And I, you know, you always have the fear that maybe something would happen to you too. And what I wanted to do was to ensure my kids that there would be some sense of income coming in in the event that I died and my music was still on the air. So from that point on, after Nationwide, I learned uh, that, no, I'm not selling you for a one-time fee. And you know what the most amazing part of this to me was? I finally realized that when an advertiser wants to use uh, Mac the Knife, I'm just grabbing a, a commercial for McDonald's, let's say. The Mac the Knife was written by Kurt Weill. This is a major song from a major musical, and they don't own it. Now, McDonald's doesn't own it. They pay a fee to use it. Most likely every six months, maybe once a year. And I'm talking about six-figure fees. This is, this is a big song for a big company. And McDonald's doesn't own it. And yet, on the other side, they turn around and they will say to the jingle composer, yeah, here's the contract. We own everything. And you have to learn to say no. So that's, that was my, you know, we talked about uh, the, my experience as a jingle writer. I learned pretty early on. I lost a lot of work because of it. But I said, no, I'll make a deal with you. Whatever you want to do a year, make it $500 a year. Whatever, pick a number, but I don't want to just give it to you for one time. And the reality is, Rick, they say, sure. If you really stand up for it, if they like what you have, they like your song, that's the name of their business. They don't care about any rights and stuff like that. They just want to know they can continue to use it. And my concept was I want to continue to be paid for it, whatever that number is. I don't want to embarrass you or anything, Steve, but in my estimation, you helped to change the business back then because of your word no as you once told me never underestimate the power of the word no you was a budweiser commercial i believe that you correct you, and from right. what i understand you had a new house yeah i had you, three young kids and i bought a new house and uh i uh, two years earlier i had done a commercial for budweiser a campaign that ran for two years and i put my name down i didn't physically even go out there i put my name down this is 53 years ago and I put my name down as a singer, and everybody knew it, and it was done all over the advertising business, and I got residuals as a singer. And then two years later, they wanted to, you know, update the campaign and create something new, and they asked me to write something. They gave me one line. When you say Budweiser, you've said it all. And I wrote this song, and I, you know, it was, I think it was really one of the better things I've ever written. And I sent them the demo. We recorded it. I think I told you Valerie Simpson was the uh, soloist. Yeah. And it just knocked them over. And I had my own contract then, my own deal. And I gave them the contract, and I said, here's the deal, and I want residuals for it. And they said no. And I said, okay, you can't have the song. Beat, beat, beat. And there was this pause, and they said, well, we'll get back to you about it. And uh, they had this big meeting there that no one in the, in the history of their relationship and basically in the entire advertising business who, was, who created a custom-made jingle for them wanted to own it. 
And I said, no, you can't have it. And I really, my wife and I, we sweated it out over a weekend. And, you know, finally she convinced me, and uh, I always respected her position on this. Give them what they want. We just bought a new house. The kids are in school. We could go on a vacation. We could get a second car. You know, this was 1970. It was a horrible, horrible weekend emotionally for me because I don't believe in that, Rick. You can't. Somebody says they want to own your stuff. And I said, no, I don't believe it. And we sweated it out. And Monday morning, they called me before I called them. They said, okay, they bought the deal. It was life-changing because I never worked without that deal again. Where I own the music, I give them an exclusive license to use it in all fields of advertising. They don't have to hire me to compose the new arrangements. They can hire anybody they want because I am getting residuals for it. And, you know, we worked out a series of, uh, of payments on it. It's the only fair way to go, as far as I'm concerned. Would you have given in had they not called you and you had to call yeah, them? I was, yes, I was. I was ready to give in. Wow. I mean, you know, again, I had a wife and three children and a house. And, you know, and life was getting better. Uh, it's tough to, you know, as Mike, as I said before, the guy says that every jingle composer has is a man with a mortgage. You know, you have obligations. And especially when you begin. I wrote a book called uh, Who Killed Them? Maybe it was Through the Jingle Jungle. And I tried to aim it to direct the voice in the book at this young kid someplace out in the Midwest is going to come to New York and wants to be a jingle in the V in the advertising business. They're trying to tell him the pitfalls. But I gave my contract. I had a lawyer work up a contract for me, and I gave it to every composer, every colleague that in the business that I knew. Nobody used because it, what it would take to use it was to go to a client and say, yes, I'd be happy to write this great new Coca-Cola song, whatever, but I own it. And they say, what are you talking about? Coca-Cola owns everything they do. I said, well, you can't own this one. And my colleagues, they were afraid. You know, I always quote Mel Brooks, the 2,000-year-old man. It's great. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's really, and it's very profound. Carl Reiner was the straight man there, yeah, and, and he right. would ask, what was the main means of transportation 2,000 years ago? And Mel Brooks would say, fear. <laughs> and what I found in the jingle business, and my experiences in the music business in general, is that songwriters are afraid to stand up for anything. Here's a guy, someone's going to come to give you $5,000 to write a song, to write this 60-second song. $5,000 to do this. You're going to fight with them about it? Take the money. What, are you stupid? And this was the attitude. And still is, because the monies are even greater now. I have not been active in the jingle business in 25 years, a long time. With all these writers waiting in the wings, waiting to pounce, how can yep. you afford to say no? Well, uh, forgive the ego here, but I think I write a good song. And Agreed. they liked it. They like. thank you. They liked it. You know, when you give them something they like, you're talking to General Motors. They don't care about this little nuts and bolts stuff. Pay them. They don't want to fight. They want something that's going to help their sell the cars. And I think I came up with good stuff. And at that point, you know, America is a country, God bless it, is a country where, you know, anything is possible. If you want to ask for the moon, you can ask for it. You may not get it. And you may have to walk away with you with nothing in your hand, but you can, in the world we live in, if you have a great idea, if you're Bill Gates and you have an idea for Microsoft, or, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and you have an idea for Apple or something like that, 
he, in my view, he is entitled, these guys are entitled to every penny that they can earn. This is America. That's the American dream. And if you give them something they want, and you, I, in my view, I'm asking for fair payment. I just want something, as I said earlier, I want a continuing payment for the, for the uses of my work. But the, uh, my colleagues, and I always call them colleagues, I never call them competitors. My colleagues were afraid. And it's really sad, but however, you know, every composer is a man with a mortgage, a woman with a mortgage. It's, it takes courage, and courage is an expensive commodity. Steve, you hear about that new restaurant on the moon? No, what's it called, Rick? Well, I don't know the name of it. I hear the food is great, but there's no atmosphere. Oh, God. Ah, don't quit your day job. I know, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, don't quit your day job, I know. You know, there's this <laughs> young lady made kind of a splash in the music business. Perhaps you've heard of her. Her name is Taylor Swift. Ah, she's my idol. I know, that's why I bring it up. You mentioned she's your new hero. Uh, will you tell us why? Well, again, we talk about who owns the, cre- the rights to the creativity, the songwriter. Uh, you know, Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein were also notorious businessmen. They, When they wrote something, they owned it. They licensed it for whatever, big money, small money, it didn't matter, but they had the creative, the power to do it. And in the record business, you know, I had a couple of records that don't you dare play them in this interview anyway, that I recorded when I was a young rock and roll singer. When you worked, we signed with a record company, they owned the recording. They owned the recording for the next, uh, for the life of the copyright. In those days, it was 28 years. And what's happened in the music business is, uh, I don't know, members of a group like The Band, who's great, just great musicians and great material, their contracts with whoever they recorded for said that the, co- the company had the right of ownership to all the recorded material for the next 20 years, let's say. And 20 years goes by, and now advertisers are using great songs, pop songs, and they had the right to license the song to the advertiser and not pay the talent anything. And that's the way it was for years and years. And finally, someone, and I know Taylor Swift is is one of the people today who follows this policy, when she records something, either she owns the recording or she licenses it to the record company to use for the next five years. But five years after that, or whatever period of time, after that, she has the right to collect. And I'm not, Rick, I'm talking about big money. You could, you know, if they want to use a Rolling Stone song, I think when Apple, I think it was, came out with, either Apple or Microsoft came out with a new campaign for Windows. And I think the song was Start Me Up. And my right, is that the name of a, of a Rolling Stone song? Absolutely. Start Me Up. Well, they licensed Start Me Up, I think, for three months, and I understand it was something like $2 million went to the Rolling Stones for three months' worth of their song. And, and, and of course, they I don't know their deal, but I'm assuming they got a good piece of that. But in the old days, a record company could license this stuff, and Taylor Swift is doing that now. She she retains an ownership of her creativity. Not only the recording, but there's two hats to this, and the second hat is the music publishing. This is becoming more and more common. In fact, I think the members of the band, or some, some great group from yesteryear, went and started to re-record exactly the way they've been doing it in their act, whatever that song was, and they owned the new recording. And then when an advertiser came and wanted to license it, they didn't, you know, they didn't deal with the record company. They dealt right with the act. And this, of course, the music publishers are not happy with that. And, you know, I mean, this is, again, I'm, I'm a broken record here, but this is a constant battle between labor and management. Taylor Swift these days is owning her music publishing and her writing rights and her recordings. And, you know, over, I'm sure she's very fair with the record companies, but she just doesn't give it away like the good old days for them. Speaking of the good old days, let me ask you something. 
opinion, Steve. In your opinion, what are the big differences between jingles of today? I mean, there aren't as many, for one thing, but the jingles yeah, of today, few. they seem shorter, they seem quicker. Uh, wh what's your yeah. take on jingles today versus the ones during your heyday in the 60s and 70s? Well, when I started, the 60-second commercial was the standard. And in 60 seconds, you can really write up a nice piece of music. There's plenty of time. You could put a space out. You know, we called it a donut in the middle. We could have put a space in for an announcer. And uh, but in 60 seconds, you could say something. And then as advertising time got more and more expensive, people went to a 30-second spot. We used to make a record. When we did a session, we always did a 60 and a 30. And most of the time, 30, the 30-second version became television because, you know, if you're doubling a 30 in the film cost and in the production cost and all that stuff, it's a fortune. And advertisers found out that they could do it in a 30. And now the 30 is kind of even old hat. Now there are 20s or 15 seconds. It's uh, the preciousness of the time that's available. You know, it's tough to write a song and it runs for 15 seconds. What's happened today is there may be one, uh, there's someone recently here, I don't know if you get it around your neighborhood, I think the law firm is called Salino and Barnes. Does that ring a bell? Not really, but there's there's a lot of them like that. Right. And they but they had one line and I don't remember what it was and it takes like six seconds. Call Salino and Barnes and we'll save you and you can sue the world and make a million dollars, something like that. But it took a short amount of time and now Salino broke up from Barnes and now I'm recently I'm watching these are two you know big law firm that uh, Barnes will now get you millions and Salino is also going to get you millions. You know that kind of stuff. The messages are so much shorter and it's really tough to write something that is creative and memorable that works in 15 seconds is the art of writing these jingles the art of selling the product so if it's effective yep. enough to sell it is that as valid as it used to be yeah i guess because the audience has changed too people don't have, unless you write i'm not kidding rick unless you write a great piece of music that is completely uh, appealing to the public public doesn't care they want they you know they if someone can jam four 15 second spots and you, know, you watch the super bowl recently there's a, a couple of 30s in there and they make a big deal out of them and then in the second half of the game they start to show 15s and you know two people can two companies can share a 30 second time by it's just you know, it's harder today to be creative in that space. And what they, you know, all they want to hear is their name over and over and over and over. You know, say Budweiser, Budweiser. The audience, I think, at a certain point tunes out. And that's that's, that's a revolution or, no, forgive me, an evolution of how advertising has worked. And people today think they can write a cute one-line joke, and there it is. You know, uh, a guy with an ostrich, an emu, forgive me, I don't know from emus, I know from ostrich. And, uh... <laughs> The bird sticks his head in the ground, and then the chorus goes, Liberty, 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 Liberty. I think this is the Munchkin song. That's what it sounds like they want to get out of uh, Munchkin Town. Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. Yeah, but you remember and, it, though. Yeah, but the, you, forgive me, but there's another word, and I don't want to use it here. I guess I can. You can edit it out. It's called fart advertising. <laughs> you know it's there, but you don't necessarily know how effective it is. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm, forgive me, I'm filled with opinions about stuff. Well, are, are you but, bitter at all about how much has changed? I mean, there was an artistry, a real not artistry. At all. Not at all. That's right, not at all. 
Not at all. Oh, man, I had the greatest ride of anyone. And I, I, there are still clients that use my music. You mentioned I Love New York, Trust the Midas Touch. You know, Nationwide does not pay me, but it certainly is a great calling card. You know, so they, I say, what do they ask me, whatever you do, I wrote I Love New York, Nationwide. They go, ooh, Nationwide, because everybody knows it. And all you have to do is play the five seconds of Nationwide. Yeah. Oh, and, sure. Uh, People know it all over the world. Yeah, but this is not the kind of creativity that I have come to enjoy. I'm writing a musical. I want to write songs. I want to write something that's more than, and I'm not knocking the advertising business, believe me, because it provides a lot of income for those who are willing to stand up and say, you know what? Great. I'll write something in 15 seconds or 30 seconds, but if you use it next year, I want to be paid for it. You don't have to go into nuts and bolts of every time it's played or things like that. Make a deal where you get paid next year. To me, that's very fair. And when you go back to the concept of, you, of the great radio stars who hung together and say, no, you can't use the recording of our show that we did that was this great big hit at 7 o'clock and play it again at 10 o'clock and not pay us. And that is in the music business, the songwriter gets paid over a great period of time. If the thing is revived, I always remember uh, Natalie Cole recess sang over, I think she, they worked it out technically, her father's recording, Nat King Cole's recording of Unforgettable. I remember. And the song had a new birth of life. I mean, this was, I don't know, 40 years after Nat had done it, and his daughter did it, and they worked it out where she was singing along with him. And the, the song itself, all of a sudden, was a huge number one hit. It was the same as it was 40 years earlier. Why should the songwriter not get paid for that? And there were people out there who would say, no, you signed it away, whatever. You know, a couple of classic stories. One of them is, I don't know, who am I thinking of? Uh, Billy Joel, forgive me. Billy Joel had a, you know, in the early part of his career, someone came in and heard him someplace and says, I'll record you and I'll give you whatever money is necessary to make the best recordings possible. And I want to be a music publisher. And Billy Joel was a young kid, just as I was with Nationwide and on your side. And he said, sure. And he signed away his rights. He was not the publisher. He would get paid as the composer, but he's not the music publisher. And all of a sudden, the person who bought the rights, I think, retired or either he might have passed away, but he was no longer, you know, a viable music publisher for whatever reason. And he's now getting this enormous amount of royalty all the time from the music, Billy Joel song. Billy Joel took him to court or took his estate to court and lost. Yeah, for like 90 million. He lost like 90 million on yeah, that deal, I heard. Um, tremendous amounts of money. Well, I know you're really passionate about this, and you should be. You're a writer. All writers should be passionate about this. Uh, back to Forgive the... me, Rick. I, yes. I know I talk too much. No, you no. Know? You're but the guest. I, I get cracked up about this. I know that. When I grew up in the business, nobody talked to me like this. Nobody said you have the right to say no. You may lose some work, but if you lose some work, you'll get another one. Don't be afraid. Don't back off. You know, so I sit here and I'm revving at 78 RPM. I believe in it. I wish there were a union, but there is no union for, for composers. But you have to learn to say no. And I think what I, my deal was a fair deal. So back to jingles. In the jingle business, how is it that you can sell a jingle to the ad business if you're not already in the ad business? Sending a song to a company like, I don't know, Dunkin' Donuts, for example. Right. Nobody knows what direction Dunkin' Donuts is going to go in. Correct. How do you sell something to a company without being part of the company to begin with? Well, I think 
think you would have to be more of a legitimate advertising composer company. We used to call them jingle companies, but the word jingle has become uh, a bad word. You produce advertising music, but it never works, not in my experience anyway, that, you know, Rick, between you and me, let's come up with an idea for Coca-Cola. And we sit down and we write this great song together. And now the question is, how do we get it to Coca-Cola? And I promise you, there are big buildings in many, many cities filled with people coming up with brilliant ideas for Coca-Cola. And all of a sudden, these two uh, upstarts from outside, Rick and Steve, are going to write something. You can't. You just can't get it to them. You could email it to the chairman or whatever. There's, there's a pecking order and there's a system there. But if you were in the business, if we had a company, a, you know, a production company, and we had done, we, hey, now we want to shoot for Coca-Cola now, but we did RC Cola three years ago and we did some Cadillac uh, car commercials and this one and that one. You have a background, you could call someone at the agency. You say, you know, listen, I'm, I'm an entity in the business and I have a, a really neat idea. Is there someone who will listen to it? Isn't that like the credit card concept where, you know, how do I get a credit card when I have no credit history. How can I get a credit Correct. history if I can't get a credit card? Well, what I did, and this is, goes back to, you know, these are the tools I used. When I started in business, I was writing the background scores for these low-budget nudie movies, they called them. They weren't pornos, really, but they were, you know, um, they needed 60 minutes of music in these films, and, and they paid nothing. No union, no nothing. They paid, you know, I think I earned $200 for the entire score, and I paid my musician I think 15 or $20 an hour to come and do this stuff. And all the young guys, everybody wanted to work. And I did 30 of these movies in the course of, I don't know, two years. And I always remember that out of the, whatever my creative fee that I ended up with, my net fee, I bought a $25 savings bond for each of my children. One, you know, for this movie, uh, Lisa got one. The next one, Abby got one. The next one, Carrie got one. And a $25 savings bond then was cost $18.75, $18.75. And over the a seven-year maturity period. That's when you bought it for eighteen seventy-five. You put it away, and seven years later, whatever it was, it's now worth twenty-five dollars. And I put each of them. Uh, you know, I, I accumulated a small, very small pile of bonds for each of the kids. And one year, now my daughters are in college, and I found this little pile, and I had each of their names written on them. And I guess it netted out to uh, I don't know four hundred dollars or $500 for each of my daughters. And I sent it to them together. Well, I never got such effusive thanks from a kid in college who found $500. Wow, unbelievable. <laughs> so, uh, But what I did is I took all the music, the, I made the highlights of my movie career, and I put it together on a reel. In those days, you had tape. And I went to advertising agencies. Who, who's the advertising agency for Nationwide? Oh, Ogilvy. Who's the advertising agency for Pontiac? Oh, uh, who was McManus, John, and Adams? And if you get one foot in the door, then the advertising business, which is this endlessly thirsty business, looking for major t for a new idea. And they said, hey, who's the guy that wrote Nationwide? And all of a sudden, the phone started to ring. And I would send out my tape to them, my reel of, you know, my past stuff. Someone said, yeah, it's great. Can you write for, I never forgot it. I got a phone call. I had written for Budweiser. No, excuse me. I had written for a New York beer, Kruger Pilsner. Ready for that one? Nobody remembers as it's long out of business. But one year, they bought the radio sponsorship to the New York Yankees. And in every game, I think in those days, it was, uh, I don't know, 80 games, 100, where they play, 162, maybe less. 
in New York only, in every day, four times in the game, Kruger Pilsner had a spot, and it was my music. We recorded four 60-second versions, and everybody who listened to the Yankees heard it. One day I get a call from somebody in St. Louis. His name was Stu Sherling. I never forgot it. Hi, Steve. You want to write for Budweiser? And I said, sure, you know. And then, you know, they gave me money for a demo, and I wrote it, and then I signed their contract to whatever the standard work-for-hire contract was. But two years later, the world changed. How much is it about who you know? In the beginning, probably not. At, well, you never you never know. How do you get your foot in the door? I mean, your neighbor, it was your neighbor gave you your first yeah. shot, right? Yeah. I had moved out to a, a small house in Rockville Center, New York, on Long Island. And my neighbor across the street was a, uh, what do you call him, a technician, I guess, for a film company that shot advertising commercials. And one day he said, you know, we have a commercial here. Put together some of your uh, nudie movie music and put it on a piece of tape and let me play it for somebody because they need a background score. All it was is a background score. And they said, great, come in and we'll talk about it. And I had to go in and look at a moviola. This is a machine that doesn't exist anymore. But it was a, a thing where you could run the film together with a soundtrack, most of the time the voiceover, and look at it. And you could measure the baseball gets hit at 12 feet, 4 frames, that kind of thing. I went in and they showed me the commercial and I was petrified because this was not just writing a song. I had to make the hits every time the, the golf ball gets hit or the baseball got hit or that kind of stuff. My, I went to my dad, who was an engineer working for the city of New York. He devised a system, a little chart, where you could tell at a certain tempo, if you want to work at 12 frames a second, you can figure out exactly where the baseball is going to hit the ball. So you could go, da 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 boom, and you were able to catch the hits. I sweated it out, and I went into the session. Man, I knew every lick and every note of that arrangement. It was like, you know, and of course they had edited the film the night before the session and moved this to there and whatever. But I knew how to, you know, fix it up. And uh, I, after I did that, everybody said, hey, who wrote that Maxwell House Coffee music? It was me. Yeah, what else have you done? Well, I did the Kruger Pills. Oh, I hear that on the Yankees all the time. Can you come in and talk to us about uh, writing for Cadillac? And that's how it starts. So what if you had not moved to that neighborhood? Uh, how easy? <laughs> come on, you must have thought of that. Listen, Rick, I think I told you this once, but if I haven't, allow me to say it again. I have a, a little cartoon on the wall of my studio. It's of a young kid sitting at a grand piano with long hair, and his face is down, and you can't even see his face, and he's really concentrating on what he's trying to play. And over his shoulder is a little tiny angel just flying around, and the caption at the bottom is the angel's voice, Dentistry. I hear dentistry is a wonderful alternative. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what would have happened if I had not lived across the street from the guy? I don't know. I kid you not, man. When I started, if somebody offered me $50, I remember it was I met a guy, $50 to paint his one-bedroom apartment. And I remember, I, you know, okay, I'll do it. I need 50 bucks. But I think the mortgage payment was like $110. So it was half a month's mortgage. And I went out and I showed up. And he had a small apartment in the city. I showed up at 6 in the morning. And, of course, he was shacked up with somebody. I had no idea. But I was there with my ladders and my drop cloths and my paints and brushes and everything. And I said, no, I got to get this done in one day. And he said, okay, hold on a minute. And five minutes later, the lady left. And I went in and I started to paint it by 5 o'clock that afternoon I had painted his whole apartment. I got to tell you, man, this was not uh, a Rembrandt, but I did it and I got the 50 bucks and he, he paid me a check and I, he still has the check because, of course, I cashed it immediately. And I see him, you know, now it's 60 years later occasionally.
eventually. He says, you know, one day I'm this, this check is like the sign to your door's check is going to be worth something. <laughs> You've been listening to the great Steve Carmen. Don't forget to come back for part two of my interview. You don't want to miss it.